Love is not the answer. Love is the assignment. Who remembers who said that? Nobody? Okay, I thought a lot of you would. (laughs) Martin Luther King is famous for that quotation. But he is right on the money. Love is not the answer, because if it were the answer, everything would be great. We all know what love is. If it were that simple, the work would be done. I want us to spend just a moment here as we start and just take this in. Love is the assignment. Love is the challenge. It's the greatest challenge. It's our greatest difficulty. I want to suggest to you this morning that learning to love is the hardest thing we ever face in life. We may not think that way, naturally, because we know We know falling in love. We know friendship. We have dear, dear friends, uh, family, of course, our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters. We know love. We love love, the feeling, the good feelings of love. But learning to love is the hardest thing we will ever face. It's the greatest challenge. As I said, there is no higher aspiration and there is no mountain more difficult to climb. Is that really true? This is the greatest duty, and yet the the most difficult challenge. Is that really true? Is it the greatest duty? Jesus was asked one day, what is the great commandment in the law? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That means this is the highest duty. Of humanity. You and I, this is the highest thing we are called to do, to love God with everything we've got. Second commandment, you know what it is, many of you, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And how significant are these two commands? Jesus identifies them as the highest and the second highest. How significant are they? How much do they matter? He says everything else, all the law and prophets hang or depend on these. In other words, every failure, every wrong we do, every breakdown we have relationally, whether it's personal, it's familial, it's social, it's international, every breakdown we have is traceable to these two commands. We are either in failing to love God as we ought or we're failing to love our fellow human being as ourself. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You might wonder sometimes in this kind of a context, well, what about holiness? Talking about greatest duty. Be holy because I am holy. God said that too. Well, when you understand love as Jesus is speaking of it, as the scriptures command it, as God himself gave it first to Israel and then now to us, Love and holiness are really one and the same thing. Holiness is loving perfectly. Loving perfectly is holiness. If you're fulfilling the law by loving, then you are living a holy life by loving. Three great virtues remain, says the Apostle Paul. Three chief virtues in our lives. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is? Yes, we know that, don't we? The greatest of these is love. There is no greater 
duty, there is no greater aspiration, there is no greater commandment. Now Jesus gives us a new commandment, John chapter 13, let's go. If you haven't already, John chapter 13, we're going to start it at verse 31 in a minute, but let me just give it to you here, verses 34 and 35, a lot of people may have memorized this somewhere in your Bible memory, uh, maybe in your youth or growing up in Sunday school, verse 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you oppose this legislation or that candidate, it's not what it says. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now listen, we cannot command romantic love. You can't command somebody to fall in love with another person. Like the old country, or not the old, the, the country song says, I can't make you love me <laughs> if you don't. You can't make your heart feel what it won't. That's just a fact of life. You can't command even friendship. Thou shalt be buddies. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work that way. And there is nothing in the Word of God that suggests that we should be commanding or expecting either of those. And yet, the Word of God and our Master, our Lord, our King, commands us to love. There is a love that is commanded, can be commanded, and must be learned, must be developed, must be grown. And so Jesus commands. He gives us a new command to love each other. Now, this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at this from five different points of view in the passage. Let me just give those five points to you really quickly. The priority of the new commandment, the audacity of the new commandment, the newness of the new commandment, the challenge of the new commandment, and the impact of the new commandment. I just want to point this out right now because we're going to spend more of our time in the fourth of those, the challenge. I'm not going to even try to give even attention to all five of those, because really, I think the main point of this is Jesus is commanding us to love, so what does that mean? What is that challenge in our lives? What are we supposed to be doing? And we want to give more time and attention to that, and yet there's more here in this text, so I just want you to see how it's going to break down into these different five points, but now here it is, the new command. There is a love that we are commanded to that we must learn, that we must develop. Let's look first at the priority of the new commandment. Where are we in the life of Jesus at this point? Do you remember if you are here last week, you know this, or if you're familiar with John already, where are we when he gives this new command? What's going on? What's happening in his life and his timetable? This is his, remember? This is his last night with his disciples. In just a few hours, he will be arrested in just a few hours, he'll be put through a sham trial. In just a few hours, in fact, if it's 7 p.m. when he says these words, about 14 hours later, he'll be hanging on the cross. And he knows all of this. He's fully aware of all of this. He knows his hour has come, we're told in John chapter 13. He knows that God has placed all things in his hands. He knows that it's time for him to go and be glorified with his Father. He knows that his betrayer is in the room. One of his inner circle is going to betray him. And so just imagine how 
poignant and precious a time this is for him to be with his men, knowing what's going on and knowing what is about to happen. The first thing he does is he washes his disciples' feet. Powerful modeling to us of how he's calling us to live. And that informs what it means to love each other, by the way. I'm not going to spend a lot of time saying that because we unpacked that last week. But that is willing to take the lower place, willing to serve, willing to set our egos aside, and willing to really put the other ahead of ourselves and do for them. Even the lowly thing is a part of loving each other. And so he, he washes their feet and he gives that great example and challenge to us. And then when he's done, he, he puts back on his robes, he sits down at the meal again, or actually they stretch out at the table. To, he, sit, he comes back among his men and his thoughts turn to Judas. And he is troubled. It says Jesus was troubled. And now his focus goes to the fact that it is time for the betrayer to go do his work. And he says in verse 21, one of you will betray me. Truly, truly, I say to you. This is somber, sober words. And then he, the disciples kind of begin to talk about that. You know, is it me? Is it I? Who? What's going on? Peter asked John to lean over and ask Jesus who it is. And Jesus tells him, so when I'm going to give, I'll dip the bread here and I'll give it to him. But then he sends Judas out. He says, go do what you need to do. And the disciples kind of assumed, well, he's got, the, he's got the money. He's the treasurer. Maybe Jesus is sending to buy something. Jesus, Jesus is inaugurating. Remember, all things are in his hands. He's in charge. He's inaugurating the final events, sending Judas to kick things into gear here. And now Judas is out of the room, verse 31. We read, when he had gone out to start the ball rolling of the great redemptive work of our Savior. And Judas had gone out. Jesus now alone with the rest. Now ready to give his final words of instruction and encouragement to his men. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. See, the ball's rolling. I'm about to enter into my glory. The whole purpose for which I have come is about to happen. And he's speaking of his cross to start with. Speaking of the cross, leading all the way to his exaltation at the right hand of the Father, I'm about to be glorified. I mean, I imagine what they might be thinking here is, I'm about to assume my throne as Messiah, about to conquer, about to throw off the Romans. But he is speaking of what's about to come. Verse 32, he says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's moving now, and it's going to move rapidly. It's going to happen quickly. 14 hours from now or so, 12, he'll be on the cross. Little children, verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. You see the tenderness? I mean, Jesus is a young man, but he's a rabbi. He's a master. He's their Lord and their, their uh, uh, Messiah. This is speaking very affectionately to them. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The ball is in play. Now I'm going to enter into the glory for which I came. And I'm about to leave. I'm about to go. And I'm going, and you can't come with me right now. Now all of this is pointing to the first words now of instruction and encouragement. 
What does he focus on first? This very moment, a new commandment I give you. This is first. This is primary. This is most important. This is the real priority. You love each other. I'm going. It's time for me to go. You can't come. Oh, here's what I need you to do. I need you to love each other. That is first. That is the priority. So first of all, the priority of the new commandment. Second, the audacity of the new commandment. I think we may pass right over this, and naturally we would. I do and have most of my life. Never thought that much about it. But do you see what Jesus is doing here? The reason we're not we don't notice it is because we don't have any problem with Jesus doing it. But do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is presuming to add a commandment. The law of Moses has given them the commandments of God. And Jesus is presuming to add to that. And you know what the law of Moses said very clearly? Don't add to this. It said it very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy, for example. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live. The laws of God, by the way, are always for our good, so that we can have life and live to the full. They're not to hamper, to hinder, to take away the joy of life. They're meant for our good. Do them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you. And Jesus is standing here or sitting here eating with his disciples and he says, I'm going to do what Deuteronomy says not to do. A little later on, Deuteronomy chapter 12 says it again. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. It's earlier in chapter 13, it says Jesus knew that God had given all things into his hands. All authority now, all control of events is in Jesus' hands. He also has the authority to add to the commandments of God. Really what this is, it's just another example. It's a much more subtle example of what this whole gospel is about. Jesus goes around saying, I and the Father are one. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through me. He has the audacity to say those kinds of things. He has the audacity to add to the commandments of God. Just another blazing example of what this gospel screams about who Jesus is. Jesus has the prerogative of doing what no ordinary mortal would dare to do or ought to dare to do to assert the authority of God himself. Now, at this point, let's just stop again for, for a brief moment and ask ourselves, are we, do we hear this as a command? Do we hear it as the commandment, the new commandment coming from on high? Do we take it seriously? Do we hear it as thou shalt? With the same weight we would hear the Ten Commandments. Don't, please, don't allow yourself just to hear this as good advice, good counsel, 
advisable ways of living, Jesus' noble ethic. He didn't say it that way. He didn't mean it that way. He meant it and means it as a commandment with all the authority of any other commandment. Are we serious about obeying our Lord? That's why I say this is the, high, the hardest, hardest challenge we will ever face in life because we are commanded to do this. It's not optional. It is the highest mountain we will ever try to climb. And there are times in all of our lives, including mine, I do not stand here presuming to claim that I am the one who has mastered this. There are times in all of our lives where we just would rather walk away. Because it's just hard and it, we're tired and we just don't have the heart anymore to keep trying. And then the commandment comes again. Love each other the way I've loved you. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, am I going to hear and obey? Well, let's move on to the newness of the new command. We had the priority and the audacity, now the newness. What makes this command new? Well, let's compare the, the second greatest commandment of the old and then the new side by side. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other as I have loved you. There are two differences in these commands. The first difference is who they're focused on loving. Who do you have to love here? That's really, you know, when the, when the lawyer asked Jesus about that, that issued in the, uh, the parable of the, great, of the Good Samaritan, he said, you know, uh, who is my neighbor? You know what he's really saying? Who do I have to love? Who am I really required to love? Okay. I, I get that I should love good people, but do I really have to live those evil people over there? Yeah. We have a different focus in terms of the who we're supposed to love here. It says, love your neighbor, love each other. Are those really different? Is there really something new in the second? No, not really, because loving each other is encompassed by the other. The other's broader. Love, love your neighbor means love your fellow human being, and each other's part of your fellow human being, Okay. So that's not so new. What is new then? The newness lies in the as clause. The first commandment says, the other commandment says, as yourself. Jesus' new commandment says, as I have loved you. What is new there is Jesus has just elevated the bar, like Mount Everest towering over Linwood. I mean, loving your neighbor as yourself is hard enough. Because we do love ourselves. Don't want to get into a, I don't want to get distracted by that right now. But you know, we've had a lot of talk in my lifetime about you have to love yourself before you can love anybody else. We love ourselves already. The Word of God actually tells us that. Ephesians chapter 5 in the great marriage passage, it says, Nobody ever hated his own flesh. <laughs> yeah. We love ourselves. And the way we love ourselves is the way we're supposed to love each other. You just apply that in your marriage, husbands, go a long way, wouldn't it? Love your wife the way you want to be loved, the way you want to be taken care of, the way you want to be pampered when you're sick, and all of that. But now Jesus has elevated this thing. He says, the way I want you to love each other is the way I have loved you. 
And there's absolutely zero selfishness in the love of Jesus. There's all kinds of selfishness in my love for myself. Jesus' love. You stop and you think about that seriously. You think, who is adequate for these things? This cannot be. And that is why we must pray. As Paul prays later on in the second prayer in Ephesians, he says, I pray that you would strengthen, that God would strengthen you with might in your inner man by his spirit. We need a strength that we just don't possess. The newness is to love like Jesus, to lay down your life, to die, to give up yourself, to be willing to say no to self again and again and again, to, to, to have such a high regard for the well-being and the good of the other that you will even lay down your life for them. There are only two other places in Scripture that refer to a new commandment or to the new commandment. And they happen to be in John's letters. Second letter and the first letter. I'm just going to read from, the first, from 1 John because it adds a little bit of an understanding of what is new about this commandment. 1 John 2 verse 7 says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. To get what John's talking about when he says from the beginning, he doesn't mean Genesis. Or he doesn't mean back when the law of Moses was given at Mount Sinai. What he means is from the beginning when Jesus was here. From the beginning of our life in Christ. When you first came to Christ and were taught in Christ, you received this commandment. It's not new to you. It's old to you at this point in your Christian experience. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Verse 8 At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because, and here's more insight into what makes it new, because the new age has dawned. Now, don't get spooked by that terminology, okay? When I talk about the new age here, I mean God in in the Old Testament looking forward to a new time, a new era, a new working, when the promises will be fulfilled and when Messiah will come. And what John is telling us has happened. Jesus told us that. It's happened. He's come. And now, what is, how does John describe this? The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The kingdom of God has come. It's present. It's growing. The darkness is already fading. The world is already passing away, John says in another passage of, of the first letter. There's this overlapping of the two ages What makes this new is we live in a new age. We are a new creation. We have new capacities. We have new life. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so we're called to a much higher standard. All right, now we're coming to the fourth, and this is where we'll slow down and spend a little longer. That is the challenge of the new commandment. This is where we just try to unpack a little more what this really is calling us to. What is Jesus asking of us or demanding really of us when he commands us to love each other as he loved us? There's much that could be said here. I'm not going to attempt to be exhaustive. I don't think I could be exhaustive necessarily. Try to be suggestive. We'll try to hit some key and central aspects of this. And as we do this, I'm sure, and even when we're finished with this portion of this, I'm sure that your mind could add to the list some other dimensions of 
what Jesus is calling us to here. First and foremost, loving each other flows from loving Jesus himself. That's where we have to start. If you just kind of think of this as I've got to grit my teeth and I've got to somehow do better, you're looking at it from the wrong angle. This is not moralism. Moralism is just kind of we in our own strength keep the rules, you know. Be moral. Be morally good people. You know, the Bible commands this, I will do my best to do it. That is not Christianity. That is called moralism. Moralism means Christianity is mostly a moral improvement campaign, and you read what the Bible says and try to do it, try to live a better life. Loving like this, loving each other like Jesus, flows first and foremost from loving Jesus. The motivation in it is that we love our Savior. If you struggle for motivation in certain relationships, you have to go back to the foundational motivation of all, and that is your love for your Lord. This isn't just about guilt. This isn't just about condemnation, just about obligation and duty, and I have to. This is about, I love you, Lord Jesus. And because I love you, my desire is to please you. My desire is to honor you. My desire is to do as you desire in my life. Three times in the space of nine verses, the next chapter in John, John chapter 14. We'll get to this. We'll have time to, more time to spend with it later on. Three times in the space of nine verses, Jesus ties our obedience to his commandments to our love for him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the evidence that you actually love me. Not your words, not your claims, not the songs you, you sing, not the bumper sticker on your car, but your obedience to me. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Loving me creates a new motivation, a new impulse to do what Jesus is calling us to do because we love him. In marriage, you will understand because of your love, you are motivated to honor and please your spouse. If it's just kind of, well, I hate this marriage and I wish I could get out of it, but I'll grip my teeth and obey God, it's a whole different ballgame. And we have a whole different challenge in front of us. They ask God to transform the heart that's gone hard. But, but when we truly love, we're motivated in a different way. Let's check our hearts for where we are with Jesus this morning first. And you know what you need to do, what I need to do at some points in our lives when we're struggling with this? We don't need to beat ourselves up. We don't need to go home from a sermon like this and all kinds of self-condemnation. That's not what I want. It's not healthy. It doesn't help. Guilt is a terrible motivator. It works to a certain extent, but it's not, it's not the good motivation. What we really need to do if we're struggling is just get alone with Jesus and just tell him the truth. Just say, Lord, I do love you. Help my unloving heart. I want to love you and I want to please you, but quite frankly, I can't stand that jerk right now. And I am struggling. 
And I don't know what to do with that at this moment in my life. I feel powerless just to, just to kind of stuff it down and make it go away. I need help. Just be honest. This isn't about, I think we make the mistake sometimes of just thinking, well, okay, I hear you again. I'll go home and I'll pray and ask God. I think we do ourselves a whole lot more good if we can just get honest with God. I hope your prayer life, your, your, and when I say prayer life, again, I, I get concerned. I don't, I don't mean some kind of a sort of a, a, a duty to perform. I mean your relationship, your living personal relationship with God. If it hasn't already grown there, I just encourage you to think this direction and pray this direction and ask God to help you in this direction that you have a living, open, honest, transparent relationship with your loving Heavenly Father and just tell Him the truth. (laughs) You know what? He already knows it anyway. And He's waiting for you to put away the masks and just come and ask Him to wrap His arms around you and help you with what you can't do and which is so difficult in your life at that moment. Well, let's look at some other dimensions of the challenge. What is the challenge? Loving each other also means committing to each other. We are the family of God. We are the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.14, a verse that I'm, verses that I'm very fond of. Paul is away from Timothy. He sent Timothy to Ephesus, leaving him there to do some of the work that needs to be done. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to conduct yourselves in the household, oneself in the household of God. I actually changed that, and I miss how I changed it, I think. It says in your ESV how to behave in the household of God. And the reason I changed that is because when I hear behave in the household of God, I go back to my childhood, and I hear Mrs. Slater telling me not to run in the church building. That's real. I'm not making that name up, okay? In other words, there's a way to behave at church. It's not what it's talking about. We think of behave, mind your manners, be a good boy and girl. No, how to, how, to, how to live, how to be, how to conduct ourselves as the household of God is what he's talking about. He's not telling Timothy, here's how to run the organization. He's, t- he's instructing Timothy how to be God's family, We are God's family. And yes, families do fail. Families struggle. Relationships in families get strained and broken. I don't think any of us would say that's a good thing, but we will acknowledge the reality of that. But let me just suggest to you that this commandment, love each other as I have loved you, points us to a kind of commitment to each other that to break up would feel like divorce. We are far too casual about the way we think about our relationships with each other. Or let me put it this way. We're far too casual about the way we think about belonging to a church. I'm not saying that in terms of 
I, as a pastor, want to lay something on you as a church member. It's not the point. I'm looking at this from the standpoint of Jesus says to Scott Gullicke, love your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters here, the way I've loved you. So that means hang out casually in a Christian country club as long as it suits you, as long as it feels good, as long as it pleases you, as long as you're happy. But as soon as you don't like something, go find a different, better one. American Christianity, I think, has a lot to learn about loving each other. Yes, there are legitimate reasons to leave a church. Yes, sometimes it's necessary. But what I'm just talking about here is loving each other. Once we've made the decision, if you're new, if you're visiting, if you've just been here maybe several months and you're making decisions about where you're going to land, where you're going to lock in, that's a different question. But if you have made this your church family, if you've made this the place where you're going to say, you're the ones, I will commit to you, and we're going to work out this thing of being the body of Christ together, then loving each other means I am going to commit and I'm not going to walk away casually. If you think that I'm overstating this, then I just ask you, Wrestle with what Jesus means when he says, love each other the way I've loved you. What does he mean? What does that call us to? We're also described in the word of God as members of one body, members of each other, like, like you know, the members of our body are knit together. And we don't just say, you know, I'm kind of tired of my right hand here. I think I'll replace it. I'll go get a new one. Amputation of a member of our body is a pretty serious thing. And so it ought to be among us. Another dimension of loving each other means that we are willing to lay down our lives for each other. Jesus said, no greater love. No greater love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And he says that right after repeating this commandment. This is also in John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Here's what I'm talking about. This is the kind of love, the kind that lays down its life. Now, what is that going to mean for us? Let me suggest, again, you think with me. I don't proclaim this. I am suggesting for our consideration as we think through and we consider what it means to love each other this way. Let me just suggest to you that very few of us ever will be faced with martyrdom. And I don't think Jesus expected that that would be the norm either. He knew it was coming. He knew many of his people would lay down their lives literally and physically. But I would suggest that it, would, it is probably harder for us to lay down our lives in living than it is to lay down our lives in death. And I don't mean for one moment it would be easy to lay down our lives in death. I would hope that I might have the courage to, to stand in the doorway and take the bullets so that you could escape if a gunman came, like the teacher did in, Colorado, in uh, New Jersey. I would hope for that. 
I'm not sure. I would not stand here and claim that I would have that courage because I've never been tested. But still, I think the challenge of doing this and be ready and willing to do this every day of our lives has got to be a tougher challenge because the bullets will come and it'll be over. As terrifying as that might be in the moment, it's over. But I still have to get up tomorrow and choose to be willing to lay down my life for you. And am I going to do that or not? I don't know. I must pray. We must pray together. What this tells me is that our concept of being a church still falls far short of Jesus' concept because I don't know that we're that important to each other. Talk about vision for Crossway. Do we have a vision for Crossway that we would be this kind of family of God? That we're, you become that important to me that I would lay down my life for you. Not in some great, noble, heroic act, but I mean in the dailiness of being willing to sacrifice my comfort, my pleasure, my Rest. Another dimension of loving each other is taking care of each other in times of need. First John, John writes about this again. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Here it comes. Well, that sounds noble and heroic. But, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, there's where he, John unpacks this. He's saying, this isn't just for some noble act of martyrdom. This is daily living. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Final dimension of this challenge as we're unpacking, final one that I'm going to suggest this morning. Loving each other means healing racial, social, and religious divides. What I'm talking about here is, before we knew Christ, we may have been divided by race, by class, or caste in India, by religion. We may have been in groups that hated the other group. Jesus says, that stuff goes away in me. Jew and Gentile, reconciled in one body. We can't feel it. We can't get it in our bones in quite the way they felt that in their day. But that divide was all across this spectrum of race, social, and, uh, and religious divides. That divide between Jew and Gentile was far deeper than the racial divides we have in our country. And our racial divides are are deep. So whatever racial divide you might be able to, to relate to, whether it be white and black, white and brown, whatever it is, Jesus says, you love each other the way I've loved you. And those things to be healed. I'm forming one new humanity. 
Those who formerly hated each other love each other in Christ. Those who formerly despised each other embrace each other. Those who we formerly considered reprobate, we now know as brother and sister. Well, as I said, there's far more that we could say about love, I'm sure, and you could add to the list. But let's all be searching our hearts and giving great consideration this morning to what it means to love each other. The flip side of this, by the way, in 1 John chapter 3, he makes very clear those who don't love, there's a serious question whether they have the life at all, whether they know Christ at all. Just let that verse be on the screen. I won't read it for you now. Fifth and last point, a bigger point here, is the impact of the new commandment. The last thing Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. This will be the mark that will cause people to say, oh, these folks belong to Jesus. doesn't say that it's going to win them to him. doesn't say that they'll believe as a result. He's going to say some things about that in other passages, and we'll come to those. But I'm struck by the fact that here he focuses on the idea that people will look at you, they'll look at us. This isn't you as an individual in your house, in your neighborhood. This is they see something about a group of people going on that isn't normal, it isn't usual, it isn't the way you see things normally in the world. A kind of love and a kind of bond, a kind of sacrificing, a kind of giving, a kind of racial reconciliation that isn't going on very well in other places. And when they see that, they're going to, and they learn, oh, these people are Christians. Oh, Okay. Jesus must be the factor in all of this. The degree to which we care about people coming to Christ also becomes a motivation for obeying the new command. That we have an impact on the world around us, not through our great worship services, not through our preaching, not through our programs that our families say, oh, we love what they do for our children. All of those are good in their place. But really, mostly, ultimately, it'll be seeing the love of Christ exhibited in unexpected ways in us as God's family. Let's pray together.